And as we gather together, we will be reading this morning from the book of Exodus. And we are in Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. It is, if you're using the dark blue pew Bible, it is on page 61. Again, Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. Let's read the word of the Lord. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you that through it you reveal more of yourself to your people. And we pray that as we study your law, that your spirit will soften our hearts, will enlighten our minds, that we might internalize your law, and that we might live it out to your glory and for the good of the people that you have placed in our lives. We pray for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we started to look at the Ten Commandments as we have been walking through the book of Exodus. We only covered what is sometimes called the first table of the law, uh, the first four commandments. They are the ones that are understood to be more vertical in their orientation, focusing on how we treat God. Today, we're going to be looking at the second table of the law, the remaining six, which are more horizontal in orientation, focusing on how we treat each other. Now, the whole goal is to understand, how, uh, understand these laws as they were originally given, but of course, what we want to also do is to understand their contemporary relevance to the church today and to our society as a whole. The question we want to wrestle with is, what do the Ten Commandments have to teach society today? Now, I understand that some might think that that's a pointless question, that it's not helpful, because it's assumed that most people don't take the Ten Commandments seriously anymore. Decades ago, they were already removed from public schools, no longer allowed to be taught or displayed. And there have been Supreme Court cases over the years uh, arguing over the constitutionality of displaying the commandments in public spaces, especially government-owned. And so it seems like there is a secular allergy towards the Ten Commandments. And that's why it's reasonable to assume that their influence in our society, in the hearts and in the minds of our neighbors, have significantly waned. But that's why I was so surprised when last March a survey went out and it concluded that a significant majority of the American public, regardless if they're religious or not, still believe the Ten Commandments are important principles to live by. So, for example, 
94% of Americans believe the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is still an important principle to live by. To be honest, I hope I never meet the 6% who disagreed. This survey also says that 94% agree that you shall not steal, the eighth commandment. 91% agree that you shall not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. 85% agree you should honor your father and mother, the fifth. 83% agree you shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. And 78% agree that you shall not covet your neighbor, that's the tenth commandment. And so I think those results should be encouraging to all of us. Because well over three-fourths of the American public still believe that we should live by what's taught in the second table of the law. Now, when it comes to the first table, uh, there is less agreement, but it was still a majority who agree that those commandments, commandments one to four, are important principles to live by. Now, what can we learn from all of that? Well, we shouldn't conclude that we as a society are actually good about keeping the Ten Commandments. A majority of us can say that they're important to live by, but actually living by them is an entirely different matter. But even so, it does seem that no matter how secular our society gets, the law of God has an enduring resilience. We can't escape it. It's like Paul said in Romans chapter 2, the law must be written on our hearts, the hearts of those who have been created in the image of the divine law giver. And so no matter how allergic we get towards religion as a whole, we can't deny that the Ten Commandments describe the kind of life we want to live. It describes the kind of society we want to live in. The law is written on our hearts. But what we can learn from Israel's experience with the Ten Commandments is that by simply legislating the law is not enough. Giving people the law, even a law that resonates with their hearts, won't produce a law-keeping people because the human heart is sick. Scripture says it's broken. It's been corrupted by sin. And that's the fundamental problem here because the Ten Commandments have always been aimed at the heart. They're, they're not merely legislating certain outward behaviors for us to conform to. They demand an inward obedience of the heart that is going to translate into particular behaviors that set apart a redeemed people, that set apart the people of God, that we might be a holy priesthood mediating the truth and grace of God to all the families, all the nations of the earth. Last week we emphasized how the giving of the law, how it was preceded by the giving of grace in redemption. By grace alone, God established a covenant relationship with a very undeserving people. By grace alone, he redeemed them from their bondage. And after, only after giving such grace did God then give them the law to show them how to live out this relationship with him in light of their great redemption. So we've already looked at the first four commandments. And so this morning, we're going to cover the remaining six. So we've got six points here. You want to look in your 
uh, bulletin, you'll see an outline. Because we have six points, it's going to be a faster than normal pace through each point as we consider the heart behind each of these commandments in the second table. So let's begin with the fifth commandment. Look at verse 12 with me. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, what does it mean to honor your father and mother? What does that entail? And do you ever outgrow this command, or is it always applicable as long as your parents are alive? Well, the first thing to note here is that the word for honor is, in the Hebrew, the word for weightiness. To honor someone is to ascribe a weightiness to them. You're saying that their significance, their value is not light and trivial, but it's weighty. So by honoring your parents, you're communicating, whether by word or by deed, that your parents are significant to you. That's really the heart behind this commandment here, to esteem your parents as being of great value to you. Now notice there's a promise attached to this command, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now don't read that as a personal threat, as if, as if God is threatening a short life for you if you ever dishonor your parents. Remember, he is speaking to Israel as a nation, as they're about to enter into the promised land. God is saying that their collective faithfulness in honoring their parents will result for them in a corporate blessing where they will possess and they will live long in a promised land under the reign of their Lord, the God, as, and they're going to live as a light to all the nations. So the promise in this command was in reference to Israel and living long in the land of Canaan. But we can legitimately derive a present-day application in this promise, in this, in, in, in this principle, that really all of the commandments, including the fifth one, are meant to bless us. And that was really my point last Sunday. All the commandments are intended to provide maximal human flourishing to bless us. Now, in the New Testament, Paul reinforces this fifth commandment in places like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, where he exhorts children to obey their parents in the Lord, for it is the right thing to do. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, he calls children to obey their parents. Why? For this pleases the Lord. And so there are a few motivations in Scripture for us to keep this fifth commandment because it's the right thing to do, because it pleases the Lord, and again, because it's going to bless you. Now, some of you may have noticed that the fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother, but Paul, as I just read, says to obey them. And you're wondering, is that the same thing? To honor your parents is to obey your parents? Are they synonymous? Well, no. I, 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 even though I, I do believe they are related, I think there is a proper distinction to be made here, and your age really does play a factor in how you understand this distinction. So let me speak directly here to those of you who are children and youth. 
For those of you who are children and youth, honoring your parents and obeying your parents are often going to be one and the same thing. Think about this. It's, it's God who chose your parents for you. And so they're responsible to God to take care of you. And so you honor God and you honor mom and dad when you give them your attention, you give them your obedience, when you don't ignore them when they ask you how your day was and you don't give them attitude when they ask you to do something around the house. But even still, so children, youth, I'm talking to you guys, even still, your obedience to your parents is still secondary to your obedience to the Lord. And so if your parents, for whatever reason, ask you to do something that will displease the Lord, especially if it results in hurting you or hurting other people, then you're actually honoring your parents by not going along with their disobedience to the Lord because to do so, to go along with that, would only increase the guilt of your parents before the Lord. But having said that, I realize, I realize that some of you may have parents who do not follow Jesus, and they may not like the fact that you do, and they may, may try to curb your enthusiasm or limit your participation in church, and they could say things like, I don't want you to go to church. I, I, I don't want you to get involved in the youth group. And you could argue, well, hey, that's going to displease the Lord because that's keeping me from worshiping and fellowshipping with the body of Christ. Isn't that displeasing to God? Shouldn't I just disregard my parents? But hear this. As long as God has you under their household, under their supervision, your parents have responsibility over where your feet go and what your hands do and what time the rest of you has to be home each night. That's, God's, uh, that's the responsibility that God has given to your parents uniquely, and so that is part of their God-given authority over you. So what you do with your feet, your hands, your body, that's your parents' responsibility. But what goes on in your heart, what you believe in your heart, what, who you pray to in your heart is beyond your parents' authority. Your heart belongs to God. And so in these particular circumstances, you give your heart to God, but you still give your obedience to your parents, even parents who do not worship, follow, and obey God. Now, I realize this whole distinction between honoring and obeying your parents gets trickier when you're a young adult, when you're in college, uh, when you're you know, starting off in your career. This, 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 the distinction between honoring and um, obeying and, and, and just strictly obeying them is definitely greater when you're a young adult, but it's still fuzzy at times, especially if you're not fully independent. If you're still living in their home, if you're still being financially supported, you have to respect that. If you really want greater independence, then you really need to go independent if that is something you're, 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 you're really um, uh, 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 wrestling against with your parents. 
But even if you're an adult, I'm talking about fully independent and not expected to strictly obey anymore, you can still honor your parents by asking for their advice, or you can respectfully listen when you know they're going to give it to you anyways. Um, and if you decide to go in a different direction, you can still show appreciation and honor even as you disagree. And you know, when life comes full circle and you are the one taking care of your elderly parents and you find yourself having to tell them what they need to do for what's good for them, you honor them by how you say it, how you speak to them, and how you care for them in their advanced age. And I know many of us carry a burden. We have a burden on our shoulders because we're not the perfect child that we felt like we were expected to be. But let me try to help you lift that burden by reminding you that there has only ever been one perfect child. And his name is Jesus. And he's the only one to give perfect honor and obedience to his father to the point of death even death on a cross, where he died for our failures to honor and obey our parents rightly. Take hope in that. Now, what about the sixth commandment? What about, what about this one? What's the heart behind the sixth? Well, look at verse 13. It says, very simply, you shall not murder. That could also be translated in your Bible, you shall not kill. But often, more modern translations avoid using the word kill because it could create confusion because the particular word was never used in the context of war or in the context of capital punishment or of hunting animals. And so that's why translators hesitate to use the word kill, prefer the word murder, because it's not addressing killing in all forms. The particular word is best translated as murder, but even so, it has a wider range than just intentional homicide. It would also include unintentional homicide due to gross negligence, like if you carelessly let your wild ox gore a neighbor, which is what you're going to find in the next chapter, Exodus 21, verse 29, addresses situations like that. So the focus is on any form of unlawful killing of a fellow human being. So what's at the heart behind this commandment? Well, really, at the heart is ultimately, it's about the sanctity and preservation of human life. It's about respecting God's sovereignty over life and death and, and so the taking of human life is only legitimate if it is authorized by God's word. Now, I know there's, there's no time for me to, to defend just war theory or the use of capital punishment, which I do believe has biblical warrant. You want to talk more about that with me? I would love to have those conversations. But what I want to stress, what I want to stress right now is how the sixth commandment is the foundation to our Christian response to the culture of death around us. We are the people of life who worship the God of life, the creator of all living things who made human beings in his own image. So that means every 
single human being, from the richest to the poorest, from the privileged to the underserved, from the bright and capable to the mentally and physically impaired, from the biggest among us to the smallest, even those in embryonic stage. Every human life is sacred. Every human life is to be protected and preserved. That, my friends, is at the heart of this commandment. Now, I assume we all agree that this commandment is very important, very serious. It needs to be respected and obeyed in our society. But I'm not surprised if most of us assume that the sixth commandment is one of the easier ones for us to personally keep. We don't really think about killing anyone. But based on Jesus' own explanation of this commandment, we know it's about more than just not murdering your neighbor. It's about loving your neighbor and doing good to them. It's about the attitude of your heart. Because if you hate someone, if your heart is embittered towards them, then Jesus says you've committed murder in your heart. The same conditions present in the heart of an actual murderer are there in your heart when you hate someone, when you despise someone, when you detest someone. You just happen to be raised with good morals. But having good morals and the good sense to never kill someone is not enough. That's missing the heart of the sixth commandment. And so this is not an easy commandment to obey. Our hearts condemn us all. And our only hope is the good news that the God who hates murder ordained the murder of his own son so that those who turn their hearts to Jesus will receive forgiveness and grace. That's our gospel hope in light of our failure to keep not just this commandment, but all the rest. Now let's turn our attention to the seventh commandment. It's there in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Just like with the sixth commandment, we have to be careful not to limit the scope of this commandment to the word adultery. Because the word itself refers to any form of sexual intimacy that violates the covenant of marriage. Whether it's your own marriage or whether it's the marriage of the person that you've committed adultery with. But of course... That doesn't mean that all other forms of sexual sin are not in view here. What we see here in this whole second table of the law is that a general sin is in view in each of these commandments, but what the specific commandment is is prohibiting is the severest form of that general sin. And so murder is the severest form of hatred. And the severest form of sexual sin is adultery. And the thought is, if the severest form is condemned, then all lesser forms of this sin are also condemned. Like Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount, any behaviors that typically would precede an act of adultery, even any lustful thoughts we have in our head, are out of bounds. Let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality among you. But you know, adultery 
It is the severest. It is the worst of all sexual sins because it's not just the sin against your own body. It is a betrayal of a sacred trust between a husband and a wife. God has joined them together as one flesh into a lifelong marital union. So to tear it apart is a great offense to not just the victimized party, but to God himself. And so the heart of the seventh commandment is to honor and to preserve the sanctity of marriage as the only bounds within which we are to enjoy the good gift and pleasures of sexual intimacy. I've heard it said before that sex is like superglue. Its very purpose is to seal and to cement the bond of marital union between a man and a woman. But when you try to isolate the pleasure of sex apart from marriage, then you end up making a mess of things. It's like squeezing out superglue at the wrong time and in the wrong places. You're asking for a lot of pain, a lot of heartache as you try to unstick yourself from those you were never meant to be bonded with in the first place. C.S. Lewis gives a similar illustration in Mere Christianity. He tries to explain why a sexual union should never be separated from the spiritual and emotional union that you find between a husband and a wife bound together in the covenant of marriage. He says, when you try to isolate the pleasures of a sexual union from a marital union, it's as unhealthy and as self-destructive as trying to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting your food. It's like trying to chew things and then spitting them out again. And that's why any form of sex outside of marriage is just as harmful, unhealthy, and just senseless. And this really reinforces the whole point that these commandments are given to us for our good. It's for our flourishing. The seventh commandment is not trying to ruin a little risque fun for you. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to bless you. It's trying to keep you from making a mess out of your life. Friends, I I know the sexual sins in our lives are very shameful. And all we want to do is to hide those sins from ever seeing the light of day. You want to cover up your indiscretions. But you know that cover-ups never work. You know that they will always be exposed in the end. But there is an alternative. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So ironically, God agrees with the sinner that there needs to be a cover-up. Sin needs to be covered, but the question is, who's going to do it? Who is going to do it? If we try to cover our sins, if we do not confess them, then God won't cover them. They'll remain in plain sight to condemn us on the last day. But if we confess our sins, and stop our feeble attempts to cover them up, then God in his mercy promises to cover up our sins with the blood of the Redeemer, which can fully and finally cover up our sins once and for all. Stop covering your sins and go to Jesus. 
Let him do it for you with his own blood. Let's consider the eighth commandment here in verse 15. You shall not steal. I think, I think it's important to understand that this commandment is not so much rooted in the idea of individual property rights, but really this commandment is rooted in the idea of God's sovereign ownership over all things. You see, only God has the right to give or take away, which would then make it wrong to take what God has not authorized for you to have. Now, this word for steal does cover a wide range of sinful behaviors. It could include burglary, robbery, larceny, embezzlement, extortion, racketeering. And just so that we don't excuse ourselves because we're thinking, oh, I would never commit any of those crimes. Well, let's just ask ourselves, what would theft look like at work? I'm not just talking about stealing office supplies, which some of us are like, I'll never do that. And some of us are like, okay, that, that tape dispenser is going back on Monday. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about more things like calling in sick merely as an excuse, padding expense accounts, or just idling away while you're on company time. You, you, you're stealing wages in a sense. And the Eighth Commandment would also apply to theft of intellectual property, like the unlawful duplication of music and videos and software, and to any form of plagiarism. Plagiarism would be in view. So, look, look the whole point is, don't excuse yourself from this one too quickly. I think we all fall short of this commandment in one way or another. But what's at the heart of, of the Eighth Commandment? Well, friends, it's not just prohibiting stealing. It's promoting stewardship. It's about stewardship. It's about understanding why God entrusted you as a steward with a degree of money or possession or intellect, whatever it is. It's, it's not to serve your own interests. It's to glorify him as you use these things to serve other people. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, he describes three attitudes towards earthly possessions. The first attitude says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's the attitude of the thief. The second says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. That's the attitude of the selfish. And, and, and my point here is that the selfish, who might be innocent of theft, is ultimately violating the same heart behind the same commandment. Because the third attitude towards earthly possessions is going to say, what's mine is God's. I'll share it. What's mine is God's. I'll share it. That's the heart attitude of a steward. That's the heart behind this commandment. So friends, if if you're feeling convicted because you realize that you are more of a thief than you thought coming in to this place this morning, well then take comfort in this thought. Jesus died as a thief for thieves like us. He was numbered with the transgressors. He died in between two thieves. He was counted among them so that every thief like us who trusts in him will be forgiven and saved.
Let's look at the ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, to understand this commandment, you need to understand that back then, since there were no such thing as surveillance cameras or a digital footprint or DNA testing, establishing legal guilt or innocence depended solely on having credible eyewitnesses. And so to bear false witness in court was a gross injustice. In those days, courts could find someone guilty based on just a single accusation, even a baseless one. People were presumed guilty and then proven innocent. And so justice in those days was chaotic. It was disorderly. And so at the heart of this ninth commandment, this prohibition essentially from lying is is so that the Israelites, well, it's not just so that the Israelites could be nice people who treat people nicely. But no, this commandment, the heart behind it is so that the Israelites could live a different kind of life and order themselves as a different kind of society where they could be good witnesses and a holy priesthood showing God and God's justice to all the nations. Now this commandment is not just applicable to bearing false witness in the court of law. Remember, we said that that each of these prohibitions are forbidding the severest form of a sin in order to condemn all lesser forms. And so the severest and the most injurious form of lying is the kind of lying that will lead to the condemnation or the false imprisonment or even the, the, the wrongful execution of an innocent man. So underneath that horrible sin, you could include lesser forms of lying like fibs, fabrications, half-truths, self-serving exaggerations, misleading statements, twisting other people's words, slander, libel, and gossip. Now, you might push back and say, wait, 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 how, how is gossip a form of lying if what I'm sharing is actually true about that person? Well, because even if the words of gossip are true, the testimony is false because your intent is malicious. You're trying to tarnish someone's reputation in the guise of simply sharing information, of sharing a prayer request. And that's deceitful because you know what your intention is really is. So here here are three helpful questions to ask yourself, to catch yourself from gossiping. First, ask yourself, is what I am saying, what I'm about to say true? Is what I'm about to say true? Second, if so, does it really need to be said to this person? And third, would I say it and put it this way if the person I'm talking about is here to listen? If you hesitate to say yes to any of those three questions, then you're better off saying nothing at all. Well, church, we finally made it. We are now at the 10th commandment. Still got some time, all right. Uh, Verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this one could really be seen as a summary of the other commandments. Because if you think about it, if you covet your neighbor's wife, 
it'll lead to violating the seventh commandment, committing adultery with her. If you covet your neighbor's property, you'll end up breaking the eighth commandment, stealing their goods. If you covet your neighbor's approval and acceptance, you'll end up breaking the ninth commandment. You'll be lying to them just to impress them. But what, a, but what the tenth commandment does most clearly for us is to demonstrate what we have been saying all this time that the Ten Commandments were never aimed at external conformity or mere behavior, behavior modification. The heart of these commandments has always been focused on the heart. And so what's also forbidden is any internal impulse like coveting that would lead you to violate Commandments 5 through 9. Now, what is the heart behind this particular 10th commandment? Well, to covet, to covet, friends, is essentially to set your heart on anything that's not yours. And not just something, and not just something that you don't have, but something specifically that someone else has. And unlike what most Eastern religions are going to teach you, the problem is not that you desire. Desires are not the problem. The problem is when those desires grow inordinate and illicit. The problem is when we want the wrong things in the wrong way, at the wrong time, for the wrong reasons. That's the problem. And you can tell when you're guilty of covetousness when you feel bitter, resentful, when that guy gets the promotion that you've been vying for or that girl gets the acceptance letter that you've been praying for or that roommate of yours finds romance while you're still single or when you're jealous of someone's age or looks or smarts or talents or their situation in life, they're married or they're single or their parents or you're, you're, you're jealous of their ministry giftedness their, their, their ministry success. Martin Luther says the Tenth Commandment was written for the nice, upright, moral people in the world, those who assume that they've kept commandments five through nine. This particular commandment leaves us really without any excuse and proves that we are all sinners in the end. And really, that's one of the main uses of the law. Next week, we're going to be talking uh, more about the uses of the law. But one of the main uses is to show us our sin and to show us our need of a Savior. Donald Barnhouse explains it this way. He says, the law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. When you look at a mirror and find that your face is dirty, you, you do not then reach to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. No, the purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. Friends, the purpose of the law is not to cleanse you from your sin, but like a mirror it is to drive you to the living water, to Christ Jesus, the Lord. He died for sinners like us. 
And if you turn away from sin and you turn towards Jesus in faith, receiving him as your Lord and your Savior, he will wash you and he will cleanse you from all sin and unrighteousness. He is going to reconcile you to God, his Father, and his Spirit is going to write his law on your heart so that you will know the kind of life that you should live in relationship with him and by his grace you're going to actually be able to do it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the Ten Commandments. Even though it is pointed and it pricks and it convicts, Lord, we know that there is grace here, that there is blessing to be found. And it's all because of the redemption that you have secured for us in Christ and the spirit that you have promised to live within us, to write the law on our hearts and to empower us, to give us strength to live out the law in our lives. Thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.